1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We're seeing the end of the tunnel. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth Him that begat loveth Him also that is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God. This is an evidence of it. That we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is He that overcometh the world? But He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. In some review from last week, question might be asked, what constitutes a Christian? Who is a Christian? The short answer is one who is regenerated. The new birth is what makes a Christian. Just like you know someone who has been born because he breathes, so birth is the cause of breathing. So it is spiritually that the new birth is the cause of believing. The physical birth is the cause of breathing. The new spiritual birth is the cause of believing. And not vice versa. It seems to say the opposite in, in the English, at least in the authorized version, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, as if the birth, the born of God, is a result of believing. But the tense of the verbs show that it's the exact opposite. It's saying, whosoever is believing right now that Jesus is the Messiah, has been born of God. The is, in the English, is present tense, with the actual tense is the perfect tense which means something that occurred in the past and has ongoing results. And so it is saying that it's the new birth that makes a Christian. A true Christian, of course, is one that believes that Jesus is the Christ. But you can have a a mental assent and a simple verbal affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah and not be born again. But even that is dealt with here because it's saying is continuing to believe. And the word believe, the idea, the active noun there is to trust. To put your absolute trust in. Not just to make a mental assent. Or just to have some kind of written affirmation of your belief. That's what makes a Christian. Old things pass away, all things are become new. Even someone who's never sowed his wild oats, so to speak, you can detect that that person 
becomes a believer, no matter how young they may be, they begin to love God and begin to notice their, their affection toward the Lord and toward the saints. And I think I mentioned this Wednesday that there was a long time attender of a church, a good church, who was converted and said to the elders, wow, this church has really changed. And uh, the singing is so vibrant. And the pastor is actually a better preacher. And we know it wasn't necessarily that the church was any different or that the singing was any different or the preacher was, though we want to be become more and more um, God-like, it was that person that was changed. And he was a moral person, but he didn't know the Lord. And he saw that indeed old things had passed away, all things had become new. John also answers the question, what does a Christian do? Not only who is a Christian, but what does a Christian do? And three things in particular in this chapter, a Christian believes, a Christian loves, and a Christian obeys. A Christian believes, you see that, he believeth that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God, and loves the offspring of the parent. But we see that the Christian is someone that loves the children of God, verse 2, and who loves God. But also notice, he not only believes and loves, he obeys. We love God and keep His commandments. So the three things in this chapter that that tell us what a Christian does or evidences of a Christian is belief, trust, love, and obedience. And that's similar to his expressions from chapter 1 on. He says, for instance, if you're born of God, you'll do righteousness, which is really entailed in, in obedience here, in keeping His commandments. Also on the negative side, he says he does not sin. He does not... Um, practice sin is the idea. We're not dominated by a sinful life anymore. And we see the fourth thing that is an evidence here in this these verses that I've read, victory over the world. <clears throat> so we might say, what does a Christian do? He believes, he loves, he obeys, and he's separated from the world. He's not squeezed into its mold like the translation, the Phillips translation of Romans chapter 12. And the Christian sees the Ten Commandments as not grievous, not burdensome, not heavy upon him. Though they're demanding and though they cross our self-centeredness, they are not burdensome to the Christian who is walking with God who loves the Lord. There was a book that came out by an antinomian that was called Not Burdensome and he was trying to teach that Christians don't need to keep the Ten Commandments. We just love one another and didn't unpack it at all. And Someone else wrote a contrary treatise and said, 
What does the Bible say? Look at 1 John chapter 5. Who is it that keep, God, keep God's commandments? We. In verse number 2. We love God and keep His commandments. That included John and his readers who we assume were Christians. At least many of them. So the not burdensome does not mean that we are no longer given a way in which we're to love, a way in which we're to love, or a way in which we're to obey, but they're not burdensome to the new man is the idea. First Timothy 1.9 is an interesting statement. The antinomians love this text. And it's good for us to know what it's saying. But this is a favorite text of those who do not believe that the Ten Commandments are for today. But again, it helps to dig a little bit deeper. You know, sometimes a spade is not enough. We need uh, a backhoe. But look at First Timothy chapter 1. It sounds antinomian. It seems that this... Uh, is a point that vindicates them, but it says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8, we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. That sounds antinomian, that the law is no longer applicable to the Christian, the righteous man. But it's only applicable for the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, and for sinners, for unholy and profane murderers of fathers and mothers, manslayers, whoremongers, those that defile themselves with mankind, men-stealers, liars, and perjured persons. Interestingly, you can probably find all the Ten Commandments in those descriptions. Without quoting the Ten Commandments, he quotes descriptions of the Ten Commandments. But it seems to say that the the law is not applicable for the righteous person. But the Bible can't say what it can't say. The law is not made for a righteous man. The word made there is interesting. It does not mean it was not formed or it was not um, given. The word made is the same word used in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 10 when John the Baptist said the axe is laid to the tree. Now what is that saying? You you lay an axe to the tree and it's going to knock it down after a while. Now our chainsaws today take a little bit less time to knock a tree down. Remember, before I had a chainsaw, I tried to, I, I cut a tree down about this wide and only had a, a handsaw. And I was exhausted by the time it, it finally fell. But an axe is laid to the tree. It means it's, it's going to knock it down. It's, 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 it's being wielded against it. That's the word here. The law is not meant to knock us down. It's not meant to cut us down. It's meant to build us up as believers. It's only meant to knock down the pride of, of a lost person, the 
lust of a lost person. It, it's laid against their immoral life. That's the point. It rests heavily upon the unrighteous. It does not rest heavily upon the righteous. What does John say? It is not burdensome. It's not grievous. It's not heavy. It's not laid against us. We have so many other passages that indicate that the law is ours to uh, live by as, as, as a result of salvation. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll break my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And here John says, you love God and you unpack your love, you direct your love how? By the, the words of God. So, to a liar, number nine is burdensome. To a thief, number eight is burdensome. You say, what about number ten? To a discontented person, number ten is burdensome. To a fornicator, number seven is burdensome. To an irreverent person, number four is burdensome. What about numbers six and five? Well, to a to a person that hates, number six is burdensome. To a person that is disrespectful, dismisses authority, number five is burdensome. To a profane person, number three is burdensome. To a, a mariolater, number two is burdensome. To a, a Muslim, number one is burdensome. And so on. They're, they're heavy upon those who are lawbreakers and those who are antinomian. And may I say the law is laid against those who believe that the Decalogue is not for Christians. No wonder why they despise it, because they resist it. Peter Masters, the preacher in, at Spurgeon's Tabernacle, mentions another evidence of a Christian here, that a Christ, Christian takes delight, his delight in the law of God. Like Psalm 1 says, and remember Psalm 19 in keeping of them, there is great reward and great delight. So he mentions, asks the question, where's your delight? Is your delight in God's words? Is God's law that squeezes us into His mold, its mold? Or is it our self-sufficiency and our self-centeredness that is the basis of the way we live. But he's saying here, this is the evidence that you love God if you keep His commandments. And if we do not keep His commandments and say we love God, we're a liar. And again, Jesus said in John 14, John is no doubt banking upon this statement, if you love Me, now the question is, is He commanding here or is He simply saying, you will? So you could take it, if you love me, keep my commandments. Is it a command? Or is it a statement of promise? Or a statement of, of definiteness? If you love me, you will be keeping my commandments. The tense doesn't really tell us, but I, I, I would take that it, it, Jesus is saying it not as a command, 
but he's saying it as a, a statement. If you love me, the evidence of that will be that you will guard my commandments, take my commandments to heart. So not burdensome does not mean not bothersome anymore. Not burdensome means they're beautiful. And keeping of them, Psalm 19, is great delight. And that's a question we have to ask each other. Is it a delight or a drudgery when you quote God's commandments? When you seek to live your life according to God's Word? It doesn't mean they're not demanding. But they're demanding to those who are self-centered. They're pride-shattering. They're world-defeating, though. And that's what takes us on to the next passage. They are demanding of our lives. And shouldn't the God of the universe demand of us what He will? After all, He's our God and our Savior. But He only means to shatter our sin and not that which is good. So the evidences of a Christian are faith, love, obedience. I put there desire. Someone else might add that as a fourth thing. And victory over the world or separation from the world. And that takes us to the next passage. And by the way, another man named Stott said, so often people think of the love of God as simply an emotional experience, but he said it's not primarily an emotional experience, but it's moral obedience. So, look at the next context. God's commandments are not burdensome, they're not grievous, they're not heavy, they're not weighing heavily upon us, only upon our sins. In verse 4, for whosoever or whatsoever is born of God, another evidence, but it, it follows the previous context, overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So it takes us back to verse 1, our faith, our belief. And that leads us to be able to overcome the world. And that is a huge evidence of a true Christian. Remember, John talked about that earlier, recorded in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Love not the world. Now, many uses of the word cosmos translated world, but it's talking about the world of sin, the world of sinners, the world, uh, the whole world lieth in the wicked one's hands. That's the, the word world, the idea here. And a Christian is going to overcome whatever is the essence of the world. And John tells us the essence of the world is lust and arrogance. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of possessions. The pride of life. But the word life there has the idea of possessions. What you have, what you own. And people boast in how much money they have. How much real estate they have how many medals they have, how many titles they have after their name. And we boast in our possessions and what we have and what we are. And that's, that's the world. That's the world. You'll get a lot of likes if you're someone who uh, 
is dominated by lust and pride. But John tells us, if you're a believer, you're going to overcome the world. You're going to have victory over the world. Now it says, what is that victory? Our faith. And what does that mean? The word faith there has an article before it. Is it saying the faith? The doctrines of the faith? Or our belief in the doctrines of the faith? Is it talking about objective or subjective belief? And it's, I'm tempted to say yes, but it does have an article in front. And usually when the word faith has an article in front, it's referring to the body of doctrine in the Bible. For instance, in the book of Jude, it tells us that we're to earnestly contend for the faith. And it doesn't mean they're earnestly contend for your believing in the faith, which is true and perhaps is covered in other passages. But it's saying earnestly contend for the faith, it says in Jude. The body of doctrine. In other words, defend the, the, uh, the doctrine of God as taught in the Bible. Defend the doctrine of salvation as taught in the Bible. Defend the doctrine of, of uh, eschatology, the doctrine of last things, that there's a heaven and there's a hell, and so on. Beliefs are meant to be believed, yes, but it's the, it's the doctrines of the Bible that show us things that are opposite than, from the world. As we follow the truth of God, we're taken away from what dominates the world. And the world is passing away in the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. So you, you put the Bible versus the world. The Bible has God. The world has godlessness. The Bible has holiness. The world is dominated by sinfulness. Humility, pride, love, lust. Jesus, the Son of God, the Bible teaches, the world may say that they have a Jesus, but He's just a moral example or a moral teacher. In other words, the Bible's teaching that morality is a byproduct of regeneration. It's the fruit of the root of salvation. You can be moral and not regenerate, but you can't be regenerate without being moral. And there's a huge difference. And the Christian's morality is not based upon public opinion, but upon the Scriptures. And so, even if a society believes in that fornication is right, it's a society dominated by the world. Because the Bible says every society should respect marriage as a covenant and that uh, intimacy should only take place in the covenant of marriage. So someone else might ask, well, how do you unpack victory that overcomes, overcomes the world? Is it simply that we don't lust? Our flesh is not, does not dominate our thinking? Fleshly lusts, lusts of the eyes, that which we see and, and greed and so on, and the pride of possessions, the pride of things. Well, can you, can you unpack it a little bit more in 2022? 
What does it mean to not being squeezed into the mold of the world? Well, let me just give a few suggestions. If it lays heavily upon any of us, well, let it be, right? Are we all up to date with all the latest fashions that push the limits of modesty and decency? Sunday's the fun day. We're okay with blasphemous movies. We're acquainted with all the movie stars and sports figures, but we can't really tell whether it was Abraham or Lot that was living in Sodom. I'm just saying that because, remember, outside the stadium, someone said something like, you know, when Abraham fled from Sodom, I said, I think you're a little bit off on that one. But that was pretty close, though. At least they're in the same book. And even in the same chapter. I've heard worse. <laughs> but you know, people can be acquainted with all the movie stars and sports figures. They can tell you, you know, all the quarterbacks on the NFL teams, but they can't tell you the 12 apostles or the 12 tribes of Israel. There's an ignorance of the Bible and Bible characters and passages. These things ought not to be. Or we love the crude comedians. Or social media is to the hilt in our lives. How many times are we constantly putting like, 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 you know, we're just over our heads in the social media, but interacting with believers and really getting involved in Christians' lives is something that is wanting. We're acquainted with raunchy sitcoms, the personality cults, the love of money, the profaning of the Lord's name. We'd rather have Furbies than babies. You know, that's a mark of the world. That's one thing I actually agreed about with the Pope. He said it's selfish for people that could have children not to have so. It, it hems our lives. It, it frees us from our, from our comfort zones. You know, the creation mandate is still there. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Those are just some examples of those that have not had victory over the world. The world still has victory over us. And we question a believer that is dominated by the social media and sitcoms and movies and just their life is dominated by video games, for instance, that just wear away our brains and, and cause us to keep from interacting with human beings and really start to sap us of our patience. Because if you notice, if you're dominated by gaming, you really don't have much time and, and patience with people. And you really rob yourself of conversations in people's lives. But the believer who overcomes the world is rich toward God. You know, he's concerned about his wealth and he liked to hope that, you know, I, I, the Bible says that the, the, we lay up for our children and we should prepare in case we die. But it doesn't dominate our thinking. Okay, we'll talk about that, but let's just get on to better things. You know, do I have my ducks in a row as much as I can? 
Tell me if I'm not. Okay, let's now talk about the things of God. You know what I'm saying? That they're not dominating our lives. We're saturated in the Scriptures. We, we want to bathe ourselves in prayer. We want to know the heroes and heroines of the Bible, of the faith. We love to talk about creation and the Creator, of the providential ruler, our Savior and our Judge. A believer overcomes the world by being concerned for souls. And it doesn't see someone as merely taking up time in the line of a store, but there are people in front of me that have a soul that will live somewhere forever. Or we're not just concerned of winning our arguments, but winning the soul. A love for the church, a love for the Lord's day. Our our pride is crushed by the word, and we're thankful for those who rebuke us, as the proverb says. A wise man heareth rebuke. We have the hope of eternal life. That's those are victories over the world that's perishing. And the bookends of faith are there in verses 1 and 5. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We're not looking for anyone else. He is God's appointed prophet, priest, and king to teach me His Word, to sacrifice Himself for me, and to, and to conquer my soul and protect me from my enemies. He's the prophet, priest, and the king because He's the Son of God, verse 5. Jesus is God and man who came to destroy the works of the devil, who's the God of this world. And He came to establish and to continue His kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. The world hates Christ because He declares its works to be evil. John earlier said in his Gospel, chapter 7, verse 7. The world is convicted of its inordinate desires and the boasting of its wealth and fame. The Christian says, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the place of thine abode. I delight to do your will. Your law is within my heart. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 119, so many verses about saturate me in the truth. Teach me the truth that I might overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. In God's law, I meditate day and night. Victory over the world. Do we have victory over the world or does the world have victory over us? That's the wonder of it, isn't it? Of the believer. I didn't have to go back to the bar rooms anymore. I didn't have to go back to the bottle anymore. Dirty jokes were no longer enjoyable to me, saying, speaking, or hearing them. There was a difference. And the difference happened with me. Old things were passed away. The church that I once despised, and I didn't want to go to church. When I was invited to church that day in 1978, and got in a car with two smiling Christians that were probing my life, I was wanting to get out of the car and get back to my dorm. And, and when, I was walked, when I walked into the church and all these believers were shaking my hand and thanking me for coming and welcoming me, I thought, this is the last place I want to be. But as soon as I got converted, it's the first place I want to be. 
Want to come back to church tonight? Yeah, I could use the, I could use that sermon again. Oh no, it's it's all brand new. Sure, I'd love to go, but I need a ride. We'll be glad to pick you up. Is that where you and I are? We no longer love the world and the things that we love people in the world, but we don't love the world system that's under the deception of the devil. John is so helpful, isn't he? He has some simple but so sublime thoughts. He goes right to the point and gives us some clear evidences of Christians. Christians believe, Christians love, Christians obey, Christians have a delight in God's Word, Christians have victory over the world. But that victory is a battle to the end. We're fighting in the victory, but we're fighting every day. We have to wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And there are times we get knocked down. We get back up again. We battle on until the church militant becomes the church triumphant. Amen.